Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all back and a special welcome to any new listeners that might be listening for the first time. You can go back and listen to any of the preceding episodes um, at your own leisure, and they're all timestamped for your convenience. But today in episode six, what we're going to be looking at is just a little political roundup. Everybody's been talking about the coronavirus, but there's a few interesting stories that I'd like to talk about, uh, some of them to do with the environment today. And then I'd also like to put out an announcement. So because the show has gotten a little bit long and I get a little bit sidetracked when I talk about stuff, I'm going to keep to 15 to a maximum of 20 minutes unless I have a guest. So hopefully that should be a lot more enjoyable to listen to and easier to manage your time. But without much else, I'd like to get straight into some of these interesting stories, and I'll give you some of my thoughts about them. So, today is Earth Day. We're not really focused on it because of the coronavirus and everything that's going on, but there's a couple interesting things that some notable people have said today. Uh, One of the most notable being the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who's challenged President Trump on fossil fuel subsidies, which, as we know, fossil fuels are a huge, a huge polluter and a huge contributor to climate change, not the only one. But on the flip side, they also provide a lot of jobs. And right now, We really do need oil more than coal, definitely, but we need oil um, at the moment. Electric car technology is not taken off to the extent that we can just, you know, defund oil. And the U.S. is in a particularly tricky spot because we are the world's largest oil consumer by a long shot, and we use subsidies so that we can have American oil be cheaper than importing it from the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. It's better politically. It's better in terms of other countries having leverage over us. And it provides millions of jobs. I have family members that are involved in the oil industry. And it's done a lot of good things in that that regard. So along the lines of this, Antonio Guterres sort of rebuked Trump for these subsidies and said he was quoted as saying that they're an even deeper emergency than coronavirus, which under analysis is true, but at this time it's quite a provocative statement given the devastation that the coronavirus is doing to the economy. And he has basically sort of been put up at odds with Trump, who recently defunded the, the World Health Organization, in my opinion, rightly, because they sort of only cover up, willingly participate in covering up China's ignorance of this issue, as we've talked about before in the show. And it's truly not, I'm all for the American citizens holding 
our government accountable. I'm all for outside sources providing criticism. I'm not saying we shouldn't have criticism. We live in a free country. But it just gets a little bit much when all of these organizations that the U.S. is the primary funder by a long shot are fundamentally just trying to attack our government, attack our country, and things that a lot of people in this country hold dear to them. So, I don't know, that, that, will, that will play out. I mean, since Trump, I mean, in my view, wrongly pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, ever since he took office and he declared his intent to do that, there's been a huge conflict between Trump and these globalist organizations that he, in large part, helps fund. So that could be interesting. Perhaps Trump will take some action in terms of lessening these subsidies, but I doubt it, given the state of the economy at this time. I think we need those oil jobs more than ever. So on to the next story, which is kind of related. There is an article that came out that said why the climate movement is getting what it, what is getting wrong on Earth Day, and this has echoed a recent trend in 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 the last couple of years that has basically said that it doesn't matter if you recycle, it doesn't matter if you you know carpool or anything of that sort. It's only what what matters on a governmental level and what happens with big corporations. That is the only way to solve climate change. You need a bold and systematic change, and anything else is not useful at all. And we can kind of see that that isn't true. Uh, the COVID epidemic has show, shown us that. Because if you look at those, I'm sure everybody's seen those satellite pictures of China, and I'm sure they exist. I mean, that was a few months ago but I'm sure they exist all over the world in that the pollution has gone down probably everywhere. I don't think there's anywhere that pollution hasn't gone down because people aren't commuting and using all the same services and everything else. And this kind of echoes a trend or an opinion, not a trend that some people have in the, uh, what is that movement? It's the, Extinction Rebellion movement, which is an economy that relies on growth, a capitalist economy that relies on trying to keep growing and expand all the time, where there's only two options, which is expanding and contracting the economy, is not sustainable for the planet as people grow and as economies grow. And I think that might have some truth to it. I don't know what we do with that information. I don't see any other viable. I mean, should we have communism? Hardly great for the environment. Uh, but it's a good point. So what this has shown is that your individual impact does make a difference. The things we were taught as kids, that if you recycle and turn off the light and turn off the tap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that you can make an individual difference. So I think that's I think that's an interesting take. And perhaps we need less systematic changes being 
sort of proposed by Bernie Sanders and the Green New Deal movement. I still think there needs to be a lot of systematic change, but I think there can be also change among the citizenry as well. And that can be achieved with certain taxes. They have this in Europe, plastic taxes, and you can get that money back if you return your plastic bottles to a recycling place and subsidies for recycling. A lot of this can help. So in some ways, it's encouraging. We can do something about these issues ourselves. Next thing I want to talk about is an interesting trend. So a lot of states in America have Republican leadership on the statewide basis. If you're not familiar with how governments run in the United States, we have a federal government and we have a state government and then we have a local government. So because state statewide governments have to be one across the whole state, they're often Republican controlled because the people that live in rural areas can outweigh the people that live in cities. And people that live in rural areas often tend to be Republican. But cities are often because they contain a lot more diverse population, younger population, and a population that doesn't rely on sort of these primary industries. They're more open to a democratic politics. So what we see now is this coronavirus lockdown has pit all these Republican governors across the country against Democratic mayors because the Republican governors with usually a market approach to government, a free market, that's what, that's what most Republicans, that's their economic ideology, most of them. Some are more nationalist and, and uh, socialist in nature. Uh, such as President Trump is a lot more left-leaning economically than a lot of these other guys. But a lot of these governors are wanting to open the economy back up because they believe that ultimately their constituents, the rural areas, are going to be a lot better off if they open up now because the virus doesn't spread as easily in these rural areas. I mean, even in Utah, I live in a city. But it's not that bad here because it's a small city and it's not a huge metropolis. So whereas these Democratic strongholds in the city are going to suffer the most if we don't get this COVID thing under control. So, I mean, I kind of agree with, with the economics of some of this stuff in that you cannot keep passing this much stimulus without raising taxes or something. I mean, we're just getting ourselves into further and further and further debt. And if we don't have a time that we can come out of that, I mean, we're not going to be able to fund ourselves for six months, nobody working. I mean, take all economics aside. Does that make any sense to anyone? Ask a, a five-year-old. Does it make any sense to keep buying stuff? You can't give sweets to all your friends if you don't have any money. At some point... You have to pay back these people that you're borrowing money from. Otherwise, our currency is going to be so become so worthless. I mean, it's an extreme, but we'll be in a Zimbabwe situation. So, I mean, fundamentally, I tend to agree with the fact that we need to get the economy open as soon as possible. Even if that does mean some people, I mean, probably more people will die. But over time, the economic health of the American population 
I think a lot more people will die of secondary related things if we don't get this open at least. We need this open at least halfway through May. We cannot continue in this vein. We've almost had ha three months of this lockdown we will have had by that time. And if you can't get it done in three months, then we're going to have to work out what we can do after that if you can't have lockdown. We have to work out another way of preventing this thing from getting out of control. And, I mean, all politics seems to be revolving around corona right now. So, it's just another partisan difference. And I think the Republican governors and state legislatures and stuff need to consider the fact that a lot of people are going to die in these cities if you don't do stuff. But perhaps on the statewide level, perhaps they can have containment zones. They can have people, you know, kind of kept in their counties, these rural people, so that we can open business back up in some of these things and these smaller towns. And then we can still have somewhat of a lockdown in the cities. So I don't know. It's an interesting dilemma. I hope that they can put partisanship aside and and figure out some way to find a compromise. Next up is there was a there's a story on political, sorry, Politico that says internal Biden campaign rift opens up over how to compete with Trump online. And basically, the senior leaders of the Biden campaign are split over whether to hire Hawkfish, which is a digital firm financed by Mike Bloomberg. You might remember Mike Bloomberg as one of the runners in the Democratic race who spent over, I think it was $200 million or maybe more than that, uh, himself, only to win one place, not even a state, American Samoa, I think it is or the Virgin Islands or something on Super Tuesday. And then he dropped out. But before he dropped out, he promised to finance the winner of the campaign with his money. And it now seems that there's people in the Biden campaign that are unsure whether they should accept that or not. So the Biden campaign is pretty poor. Even not because it doesn't have corporate donors just because he was not that viable of a candidate for a really long time. All of these corporate donors that would normally donate to him were split among all these other people. And since they've dropped out, I think a lot of that money has come to him, but he's at a huge deficit compared to Trump. Trump never stopped campaigning. He never stopped fundraising ever since his election, since Probably late 2014. I don't know when he announced his candidacy. 2015, I remember, I think. But he probably started fundraising before that. He never stopped fundraising. So he doesn't. He didn't have the enthusiasm of uh, Bernie's campaign, which was historic in the amount of fundraising by common people. But he also had corporate donors. So what Trump has is really the the median between having enthusiastic supporters and private donors. Because Trump supporters are pretty enthusiastic for the large part. They're not as enthusiastic as, as Bernie's movement was, but 
He also has those corporate donors. So he has a lot of money. And there's these Biden advisors are not sure whether they should use this firm Hawkfish, which is backed by Bloomberg and financed by him. And basically what it all comes down to is Trump's digital presence is significantly larger than Biden's on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. A disadvantage that has made these discussions even more urgent. And the Biden digital operation, which includes about 25 people at this time, is less than a quarter the size of Trump's 100-person campaign team. Hillary Clinton's digital operation was just a little less than 100 at this point in 2016. And she wasn't able to have, I mean, yes, we know she won the popular vote, but that doesn't really matter because that isn't how you win an election in America. So, I mean, it's kind of a pointless topic discussing that. There's a reason that we have the Electoral College. And perhaps we should look at changing that, changing how it works if we keep having presidents not winning the popular vote. But it's only happened four times, I believe. So if Hillary Clinton barely lost the election with the same number of campaign team as Trump, and although she wasn't likable, she was a viable candidate. She had something she was offering towards the people. Joe Biden, perhaps a lot less. So... It seems to me like these 10 Democratic officials hired by the Biden campaign or part of the DNC or whatever need to figure out how they're going to do this without Bloomberg's money if they don't want it. And Advocates for the Hawkfish, which is Bloomberg's company, Uh, say that instead of spending weeks or potentially months building an in-house team, the campaign could plug the campaign, its version of the the uh, digital team, and play the firm. Uh, because they already have Bloomberg's cash, and they have a lot of impressive Silicon Valley talent. People that don't want Hawkfish involved in this campaign said that they were ready for Silicon Valley arrogance, but they found them to be smart in it for the right reasons. But a lot of the people that are, that are not for this are really thinking that, look, Bloomberg spent a billion dollars, okay, a lot more than I thought. So he spent a billion dollars to win Guam. That's what they said. It was actually in American Samoa, as I thought. And Shelby Cole, the digital director for Kamala Harris's presidential run, who is probably likely to be Biden's VP. Not a smart move. Terribly unlikable woman. But she says it would be a colossal mistake because she's just pointing out that they spent all this money and they basically got nothing. So if they can't be... If they can't win even a state in the primary, they're probably not too great to go against Trump, who has an experienced campaign used to really involved in the digital advertising area. 
And Trump campaign campaign spokesperson Ali Pardo said that the Biden campaign spat is is really irrelevant because whether they build an in-house team or they hire Blackfish, I think is the, what is it? Blackfish or Hawkfish, sorry. Blackfish, I think that was from a video game or something. Um, She's basically saying that Nothing, no amount of money can buy Joe Joe Biden the kind of infrastructure that their campaign has put in place over these years, which is true because anyone that's coming in now is going to be new, no matter who's paying them and how 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 much they get paid. It's outspent Trump's campaign on Facebook and Google since February, but who knows if they can keep that up? Trump has more money. And he doesn't have as many people to convince. He has like a 96% approval rating or 92% approval rating in his party. Joe Biden can definitely not say the same. And at this time, he has his highest approval ratings ever. So Joe Biden kind of does need to be outspending him. Meanwhile, staffers that were with the Warren, Buttigieg, and Harris campaign feel that time is slipping away. They want to get involved in helping Joe Biden win. Well, some of them not. Some, some. well, with Bernie's campaign, a lot of them have come out and said that they're not supporting Joe Biden. But it seems to me, just my take on it, is that whether they hire this place or not, they need to decide. Because even if they're outspending Trump... You know, Biden has a lot of people to convince. He does not have this party behind him. And it's going to be a close election no matter what. I'm not calling it for anyone. But at the moment, it really looks like it's Trump's to lose. So, I mean, that's going to be it from just those stories today. I hope that this format of the podcast with a couple different things and not a strict schedule is going to be better to listen to. If not, let me know. But I'm going to cut it right here. You guys can follow me on Instagram at E-M-X-R-I-L and on TikTok at E-M-E-R-I-L underscore C-B. And I'm going to be posting the topic of Thursday's podcast on my Instagram story. And, I mean, without much further ado, I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. I'd like you to share this with three friends. Tell them why you enjoy listening to it. Or if you don't enjoy listening to it, tell me something I can do differently. I'm always open to criticism. I think that's going to be it for me today. So peace out and have a great rest of your week. And I'll see you on Thursday.